Welcome everyone. Uh, thanks for joining us today. Um, my name is John Scantieco, and I chair the Baker, uh, Baker Donaldson Global Business Team. And I also serve as a member of the Chamber's uh, International Business Council uh, Advisory Board. And I also have the distinct privilege of serving as the British Honorary Consul for Tennessee. In that role, I try to promote uh, bilateral trade and investment between the state of Tennessee and uh, the United Kingdom. So before we get started today, just a, a few uh, reminders. Um, please keep your mic on mute, whether you're joining us on your computer or on your phone. I think uh, the last two months, we've all probably experienced some uh, uh, exciting moments uh, when people did not have their mics on mute. So if we could do that, that would help us. I uh, get the highest quality content, so please make sure there's no background noise. Also, uh, we will have some time for questions uh, from the Consul General. Um, you can ask the Consul General following his remarks. So uh, in, in, in due to this format, if you could please type your questions into the chat box that is at the bottom of your uh, window, and then we'll get to those uh, later in the program. So today's event is uh, a joint effort of Baker Donaldson and the Nashville Chambers International Business Council, the Tennessee World Affairs Council, and the Center for International Business at Belmont University. Uh, I encourage you, if you have a moment, to check out the, World, the Tennessee World Affairs Council webpage as they have made a seamless transition to virtual programming that is focused on uh, global affairs. And you can find these programs uh, archived on the Tennessee World Affairs uh, YouTube page, which is TNWAC, so TNWAC YouTube page, and uh, offer great insights into the local impacts of uh, COVID. The world, they're, they're excellent, and I think you really would enjoy them. So please check those out if you get a chance. Also, the uh, Chamber and Baker Donaldson have both been very active uh, in engaging experts on navigating a business through the challenges of the COVID-19 impact. So please look at both the National Chamber's website and the Baker Donaldson website for more information on upcoming programs and other information that you might find relevant to your business um, as you uh, navigate through these very uh, challenging times. So next, I'd like to take a quick minute uh, to recognize the Chamber sponsors that make today's event uh, possible. Uh, Baker Donaldson is the IBC's presenting sponsor, and we appreciate the opportunity to partner with the Chamber uh, on international activities and, and events, uh, you know, like this. And we believe uh, educating the public on what's happening around the world is so critical in today's environment if you want to be successful. Also, our pivotal partners, we want to thank Delic U.S. Holdings, Gasparian Sims, Blue Cross Blue Shield of Tennessee, Community Health System, Gresham Smith, and Regent. And then the supporting sponsors, Bank of America, the Center for International Business at Belmont, uh, the National International Airport, and Mitsui USA, and also thanks to our media partner, the Nashville uh, Post. Now, before I pass it over to Ralph Schultz, I just want to say I think an event like today is really important you know, the challenges that are being, uh, um, uh, that we're facing right now because of the COVID-19 outbreak, uh, 
it's, it's very difficult, and I understand that. I think there are going to be lots of opportunities, though, that will emerge as we resolve this crisis. One of those, I think, is the strengthening uh, between the U.S. and the U.K. in terms of trade um, and other matters. And so I think this presentation today will give you a good opportunity to really get a better understanding of what is happening uh, between the U.S. and the U.K. and where the opportunities may lie for you and your company. So now I'll pass it over to Ralph Schultz, who's president and CEO of the National Area Chamber of Commerce, to introduce our speaker. Ralph? So thank you, Honorary Consul John Scantieco, and that's a mouthful. Um, appreciate everything that John does for our international uh, business affairs. Good morning, everybody, and welcome. Today's global update webinar marks our first virtual IBT event. We have nearly 80 people in attendance this morning from five states and a few international guests as well. Thank you for taking time to join our program. We are very excited to feature one of our most valued international partners as this morning's featured speaker. Consul General Andrew Staunton is joining us from Atlanta to offer updates on the UK response to COVID-19, Brexit, and the US-UK free trade agreement, which recently ended round one of negotiations. And I know that for many of you, he's a familiar face. He gets to Nashville frequently, and we appreciate the fact that we have the partnership with him. Andrew was a in June of 2018. He's the senior UK representative in the Southeast United States responsible for relations with the states of Georgia, Tennessee, North and South Carolina, Mississippi, and Alabama. As I said before, he's a great friend in Nashville, a trusted thought partner in planning visits to the UK and making really meaningful introductions that have impacted our region's growth. So, Andrew, great to have you with us and take it away. Thank you. Uh, yeah, as Ralph said, Andrew Swanson, I hope everybody can hear me. It's just got Ralph's wonderful face on my screen. <laughs> <laughs> So, so, so Andrew Johnson, when, when I was preparing for this, uh, uh, picking out Ralph's point, I have been a frequent visitor to Nashville, and I was thinking about how we had uh, engaged over that period. So my last visit was on the 24th of January, and I, I remember uh, participating in another event that the International Business Council organized. And at that time, uh, the work that I left thinking about was vibrancy. I found the city of Nashville and other parts of Tennessee where you were just about to have your first major league soccer match, Nashville uh, FC playing at Atlanta United, where I was talking to Brian Moyer about uh, Nashville Tech Council's participation in the London Tech Week. Uh, and there was such a vibrancy, uh, colour, warm positivity around the city, lots of signs of business development, it was easy for me to talk about relations between the United Kingdom and the United States because of the direct links between London Heathrow and Nashville, and everything was going swimmingly. After my participation at the International Business Council, I had a, a couple of minutes chat with uh, John Scanny where he was uh, telling me what was on his plate. 
I mean, started the discussion about coronavirus because John and Dave Donaldson are very active uh, advising clients who have infection. Little did I think that uh, only uh, three months, four months later, one of the topics I would be discussing with you is around uh, COVID-19. I'd like to break uh, of COVID-19. Secondly, the so-called Brexit, and thirdly, the UK-US free trade agreement. Uh, so obviously, like many of you, or if not all of you, I'm speaking to you from my home. It's become a very comfortable uh, working space, and that signifies the impact of uh, COVID-19 on the operations of the British Consulate General. Uh, it would be far more straightforward for me to be speaking to you in person, but we're all working from home. But while we're working from home, we're still providing essential services to British citizens. So myself and my team have been helping British travellers get back to the United Kingdom. I've actually been helping uh, over the last couple of months British uh, uh, passengers on board cruise ships get back to the UK. So I thought I would uh, talk a little bit about the, the UK response uh, to COVID-19, how it reflects itself at home, but also what we're trying to do internationally. So it's clear to everybody that uh, COVID-19 is the biggest public health emergency in a generation. And our priority and our policy is focusing, focusing on life and livelihood. I'm sure some of you have, have read about uh, the fact that our Prime Minister uh, developed COVID-19 and was in intensive care for a different 10-day period. So I think uh, since then, uh, there's been a real stepping up of the UK's approach. We consider that we're now past the peak. Uh, we're working on the basis of a science-led action plan where we're trying, and our priority is contain, delay, research, and mitigate against the virus. So on the 10th of May, the Prime Minister announced uh, a number of restrictions based on that science-led action plan. To the fore, uh, when I talk about lifting restrictions, it's really easing restrictions so that we could take time to research the impact of those uh, so that we could understand what this meant in terms of our hospital capacity, but also what this meant in terms of uh, how the British public were reacting to the easing of those restrictions. So what we've done is uh, get in place social distancing measures that allow people and uh, people within the same household to exercise more, to go to work if they can't work from home and if they can get to work. So there's been quite a lot of coverage about whether that has been the right approach, but the data suggests that, as far as we know, that the decision to ease restrictions was the right one. And obviously, when you ease restrictions, there is always a clamor for proving that that is the right decision, but also seeing whether you can extend the scope. And I'm sure one or two of you have caught on media reports that uh, different parts of the United Kingdom have eased restrictions in different uh, ways and at different times, and I think that reflects very much the impact of COVID-19 on the different regions and countries. Aside from that, obviously, the British government, like all other governments, is trying to take a coordinated fiscal and monetary response. So we've made available to businesses uh, loans and guarantees, which are up to about 15% of the United Kingdom's GDP. Uh, we've also supported businesses uh, for those who become ill or cannot work. We've uh, put in place uh, 
are more things so that uh, for private sector companies that want to uh, make difficult decisions about asking their staff not to come to work, we've uh, covered 80% of an employee's wages up to a maximum of £2,500. We're now in the, uh, in the likelihood that we're considering policies about what should our immigration approach be around border restrictions. Because it's obviously key that when you're over the peak of the global pandemic in the United Kingdom, that you really take measures that suit and ensure that you don't have that second wave, which most people are very concerned. But our main approach uh, domestically is, is one that's centred on our international approach, which is each country, and indeed in the southeast here, each state will decide what measure are in its best interest, but understanding what others are doing and exploring that cooperation and co coordination is, is vital. If I could turn more internationally now, uh, we obviously have a, a need to ensure that we have the correct international response. So we have a four-point plan, which is about securing a strong and coordinated global health response because we want to solve this on our own. We're accelerating the search for vaccines and new treatments. But while accelerating the search for vaccines and new treatments, we're also working internationally to ensure that if the United Kingdom or another country or another private company develops a vaccine or treatment, then this should be made available to all. So we're putting a lot of money into supporting those organisations and institutions who are trying to ensure that vaccines can be distributed, developed and uh, researched. We're supporting the global economy. We're supporting this through trying to keep trade flows open and uh, securing critical supply chains. And also, importantly, as a government looking to protect our citizens abroad, we're looking to keep transit hubs and uh, transport routes open as far as we possibly can to support the flow of uh, medical supplies, aid and uh, goods, as well as allowing our people to home. So in terms of overall uh, contribution, uh, the government has provided a series of loans to employers, but we've also provided novel loans such as bounce back loans to allow companies to recover, both small and medium enterprises, but also some of our big businesses. We've announced more investments in our transport infrastructure. We're doing a lot on job retention schemes, a lot on trying to, as we've often discussed in Nashville, trying to ensure that that knowledge economy that we all know is coming and that Nashville is at the centre of has the opportunity to get through this very difficult period. So we're looking to invest in our startups so that they're able through a series of grants and loans to keep doing what they're doing, to keep their people involved and to, to drive forward that innovation agenda. I'm more than happy to take questions on that again. I said I would uh, come to, to Brexit, which, as many of you who have heard me before, has, has dominated uh, most of the UK political debate for, for quite some period. But so I'll keep it a little bit briefer because I think I'm talking to an audience who knows much of what the current situation is. So the United Kingdom left legally the European Union on the 31st of January 2020. We were in a transition period that lasted up until the 31st of December 2020. Uh, the Minister has passed legislation in our House of Commons and Parliament that there will be no extension to that uh, transition period beyond the 31st 
of the Anderson, the intent has been the government to the United Kingdom's destiny will be to not just have legally left, but to have come out of the transition period by the end of this year. We will leave the transition period and we what we are advocating for very strongly is what we refer to as a comprehensive free trade agreement with the European Union, which is uh, modelled on the same sort of free trade agreement that the European Union has with Canada. If we cannot negotiate that, we have made it clear that we will leave with the deal we reached in 2019 and we will trade with the European Union in the same fashion as Australia did. And for businesses out there that trade regularly with the United Kingdom, I would draw your attention to the fact that the United Kingdom announced what our global tariffs would be uh, on Monday this week. And that will be the tariffs that are applicable to all countries around the world are looking to export goods and services to the United Kingdom. But what we're not looking for with the European Union is a special deal, a peaceful deal, a deal that uh, uh, is preferential towards the UK. What we're looking for, as I said, is a deal based on EU precedent. We see our relationship with the EU as being one around friendly cooperation between sovereign peoples centred on free trade. Uh, we accept that that will come with uh, some restrictions around trade, but we're looking to minimise this. And businesses in the United Kingdom have been preparing for this for some time. Obviously, COVID-19 has uh, had taken their attention away from it, but I think that most businesses understand that at the end of this year, the rules of the game will change. Just a, a couple of other points on Brexit before moving on. No deal, which was talked about much, uh, last year, but in fact, sometimes it seems that uh, U.S. people I was speaking to spend more time watching the BBC Parliament channel than they do watching Netflix at this moment in time. So no deal is off the table. The issue now is about what sort of uh, free trade agreement or what sort of trading relationship we'll have with the European Union in the future. So negotiations have been continuing. The latest round happened last week. Uh, where the lead negotiator David Frost met with Michel Barnier, the European Commission's negotiating uh, envoy. Uh, it's clear that the negotiations are proving tough. Uh, it's clear that the European Union is insisting that uh, the United Kingdom should align ourselves with the European Union's approach on regulations, workers' rights, and environmental standards. We don't accept that because we think we start from a place of exceptionally high standards, and it should not be the case that uh, the United Kingdom is offered a free trade agreement which differs from those already in operation between the EU and Korea, Japan, and Canada. So we are not looking to be bound to decisions about the future economic and political independence of the United Kingdom being taken in the EU. So the last round of negotiations, to quote uh, the British chief negotiator, made little progress. Uh, we think that uh, we need to avoid bringing into being novel and contentious new measures that the European Union looks for us to align totally with their uh, approach. Again, more than happy to answer questions on that. And the final thing I wanted to touch on before taking questions was Obviously, our legal decision to leave the European Union allows the United Kingdom to 
take back control of our international trade policy. I'm sure everybody in the line has understood how important trade policy between nations, between trading blocks, has become both as an economic uh, development tool, but also in terms of geopolitics over the past year. And I think everybody in this call is aware that the United States has been in the vanguard of that. So, at the moment, uh, we are very glad, encouraged that, uh, that the United Kingdom and the United States are working together to try and achieve a, a comprehensive free trade agreement between the UK and the US. So the first round of talks actually took place between the 5th of May and the 15th of May. They were led on the British side by International Trade Secretary Elizabeth Truss and Ambassador Robert Lighthizer led on the, the US side. There were 30 meetings over a 10-day period. They looked at all chapters of the trade agreement and involved more, more than 200 negotiators. I think this was all done by uh, secure virtual meetings, but they got into the substance. Uh, because I think the United Kingdom's view and the portions of the into the substance are twofold. These unprecedented times that we are uh, living in have really shown to us that uh, more trade is essential, that we need to ensure our supply chains are reliable. We need to ensure that we can get the products we need, including to deal with uh, a public health emergency. Uh, at the time we need them and in the quantities we need them. So I think that uh, this whole concept of the UK regaining its international trade policy competence will mean that we remain a global partner. We're looking for free trade deals. And it's clear that uh, a UK-US free trade agreement will push both UK and US businesses. And it will also bring jobs and uh, investment uh, to boost the economy in the United Kingdom, but also in the United States, including in Tennessee. So the, the talks ended very positively, and there's been agreement that we will work at an accelerated pace. The next round of talks is scheduled for the 15th to the 22nd of June. There will be lots of interpersonal work, and uh, all aspects of the comprehensive free trade agreement are under discussion. So that's positive, constructive, and a mutual commitment to make this happen. It's important to bear in mind that we're bringing together in a free trade agreement the first and fifth largest economies in the world. We have a very sophisticated trading relationship with more than $1 trillion invested in each other's economy. You'll have heard me say before, two-way trade is a quarter of a trillion dollars per year. And each day, more than one and a half million American citizens go to work for British companies. And each day, more than one and a half million British citizens go to work for American companies. So what we're looking to do is to be ambitious, make steps uh, and where we've seen particular progress. Has, and what is leading to that high ambition has been around services, investment, digital trade. So we see opportunities for business. We see benefits for workers, consumers, and farmers. Small and medium enterprises will be a strong focus of this work because I think everybody here understands that SMEs are the backbone of our economy. And it's abundantly clear when I talk about accelerated case that uh, both the U.S. negotiators and the U.K. negotiators are looking to deliver this quickly, comprehensively, swiftly, and to the benefits of all. And so that commitment to a free trade agreement isn't where it ends, as I think John and Ralph said earlier. 
what we are trying to do is ensure that British companies who are in the vanguard of tech development, who are in the vanguard of future of mobility, who are in the vanguard of helping us all live healthier lives, uh, come to states like Tennessee, come to Nashville, come to Knoxville, come to Memphis, and bring that talent uh, here to work collaboratively with you. And that's why I'll finish where I started. But we need to look forward. We need to look forward in a way that remembers that vibrancy, that remembers those connections, that remembers that the UK is a very reliable partner. But also remembers it's not just vibrancy, that national Memphis and not so issue. It's established relationships. It's some of the world's brightest brains. It's some of the world's brightest healthcare facilities. And I think we need to all come together in, in some form of common good. And I'll just want end with the best news that I had. I started with soccer and I'll finish with soccer. Although natural SC haven't been able to play games, neither were my team, Glasgow Celtic, SC, but we were just announced as Scottish champions. So that's been the best news I've had for some time. And I look forward to the day when natural SC win the MLS and we're all back to a period of normality. Thank you very much. Sorry, has anybody been listening? John? Carly? Can, can you hear me? I can hear you now, John. So, yeah, sorry. I think it was uh, my phone went to mute. So uh, thank you very much. And if people have questions, uh, please go to the bottom of your screen and click on the chat box, and then you can just type in your questions. We'll see them, and then we can uh, ask those questions and have them answered. Obviously, we want to make sure that we're providing you with the information that you would like to know uh, and, and be, making it more interactive. We find it's always a better, a better approach. But we have one question right now from uh, Pat Ryan, who is president of the uh, Tennessee World Affairs Council. And Pat has asked, the COVID-19 pandemic crisis has heightened the tensions between the U.S. and China, with the World Health Organization being a point of contention. What is the U.K.'s view on the charges being made by Washington towards the WHO and China over the performance in uh, the pandemic? Thank you very much, Pat. An easy one to start with. No doubt just uh, getting us to a bit of geopolitics. I think the U.K. position is that... Uh, we appreciate and we understand that we have to work with organizations uh, such as the World Health Organization. They, at this moment in time, are the institution that brings together the, the right people in the right place and uh, at the right time. Uh, so the World Health Organization has been uh, dealing with a global pandemic that no one uh, thought would come. Uh, so we're looking to work in partnership with World Health Organization, but also to emphasize our bilateral uh, relationships. So in terms of working in partnership with the World Health Organization, we co-hosted a coronavirus summit which uh, pledged money to uh, those who are trying to coordinate the response to the appeal to ensure that they have the right sources of funding available to help with vaccine development. So not just vaccine development, but also to fund uh, or to make available funds so that if vaccines or therapeutics were 
uh, invented for research and came to the fore. So this was made available to everybody, including the world's uh, 15 poorest countries. So the UK will remain a multilateral country, but we're also obviously ensuring that we're working closely with the United States. It's not really for me to comment on the United States' relationships with China, other than to say that uh, what we need is the big countries of the world working together uh, collaboratively in a cooperative manner to ensure that we deal with the global pandemic. So at this moment in time, the UK is not uh, engaging in, in any actions of diplomacy that would close down the avenues for communication. We're trying to open them up because we think by opening them up, that's the way that we get people buying in. So that's just not opening up for the sake of dialogue. We want to open them up at these lines of communication for searching questions about what happened, when was the information available, what did we need to know. I go back to something I said earlier. It's only by understanding the response in very different countries, understanding the success, that we can all develop our own policies which meet our national interests but have that international perspective. Thank you. Uh, we have another question. Uh, any estimate on when visitors to the UK from the US will not need to quarantine on their arrival? Well, it's quite an interesting question because uh, I think 10 days ago, my Prime Minister announced that uh, when he was easing the restrictions, that uh, we would shortly be bringing in a policy of border restrictions. And I think the, the difficulty of bringing this policy in is mirrored in the fact that 10 days later, we still haven't made that announcement so, or changed our policy. So at this moment in time, there are no self-isolation restrictions of U.S. travelers going to the United Kingdom. That may change, but I don't have that information because it would have to be put forward in legislation within the British Parliament. But uh, we haven't had the, the full information, and that may change quite quickly. I think it's important to remember, and I know one or two quick influential people in the national area have suffered in the other direction whereby, apart from uh, certain exemptions of uh, visa categories, there have not really been any people from the United Kingdom arriving in the United States or I think any area. And those who do arrive have to go into a 14-day self-isolation uh, approach. And that is obviously influenced uh, the number of air services that have been available. Uh, beyond the pandemic. So we're, we're all trying to deal with this different ways of ensuring that we're taking the right decisions that are in the best interest of our country. But until this point, the UK has not put in place any border restrictions because we have felt that the important thing was to be as open as we could be to the outside world. But I think uh, as these border restrictions are considered, it will be really because the UK is over that peak. We want to ease our social distancing measures, but we don't want to get into a situation where we ease those measures and find ourselves in a second wave because our border policies haven't been appropriately thought through. Uh, another question, uh, do you believe the UK will have a COVID-19 insurance backstop offered soon? Uh, I would be speculating uh, if, if I did. What, what, what I would say is that uh, for many people uh, on the line, they will understand uh, the importance of the City of London in terms of insurance, reinsurance, and brokerage. And some of the most innovative approaches 
aren't always government-led, but they're the insurance industry uh, looking ahead, looking over the horizon. So it would not surprise me if some of these people who moved the insurance markets were looking at some form of a different approach around, around COVID. But again, that would be pure speculation. But if such a thing does come to be an approach in our uh, toolkit against COVID, I would certainly uh, expect the UK to be at that table, at that table from a government perspective, also at that table in terms of the, the big business interests and consumer interests that would be brought to bear. But uh, it may be one of those that is best to avoid speculation and uh, see what transpires as the, the approach matures. Uh, you mentioned during your presentation that the UK is currently negotiating, among others, uh, trade agreements with both the EU and the US. And now the US has a has very different standards than, say, the UK and the, that the EU follow. Uh, the U.S. typically requires its trading partners to follow standards similar to those in the U.S., or at least to not give their home country businesses an advantage over the U.S. companies. The, US, the EU, on the other hand, seems to be requiring the U.K. to adhere to its standards if it wants a trade deal. In other words, so-called level playing field rules. Uh, how does uh, can the U.K. thread kind of that needle to do both? Uh, and if it can, how do you how does it how does it do that? Yeah, in, in terms of threading the needle uh, to do both, I think I explained a little bit earlier that we are involved in two uh, separate negotiations, but there are obviously linkages between them. And I think within uh, in our discussions with the European Union, I mentioned the work that the European Union would like us to align with their standards, regulation, workers' rights, and environmental standards. And what we've got is an independent uh, trading nation, but that doesn't suit us. We don't think that that is the right approach. I would, however, like to say that this isn't the United Kingdom suddenly going to drop all of its standards. We have very, very high standards that have been informed by European Union regulations where Britain was at the negotiating table. So we will continue to press that we are not having to align, but that we have the choice to identify where it's in our national interest to, to perhaps uh, adopt similar approaches. But that will be on a case-by-case basis. But that freedom that we want to ensure enables us to do more with the United States because we both have very high standards. As you're right, and the question is right, we have different standards. And what we're trying to do through the, the free trade agreements is to identify the areas where it really does make sense to open up uh, trading volumes. And while respecting standards, we want to be more daring in sectors such as agriculture. You know, the, you know there are certain buzzwords about chlorinated chicken and uh, food standards, but we don't think that that represents all of our desire to have more agricultural imports and exports in, in both ways. So what we're looking at is agriculture in its totality, and we want to look at every chapter of these, from digital services to SMEs to intellectual property in their entirety, to understand where we can make progress. But it is a negotiation, so there will be give and take. And I think the U.S. negotiators have already set out their mandate, and we have set out our approach. And now what we're doing is looking to see where we can make progress, but we will be ambitious. And we will look to, across every sector, 
of a comprehensive free trade agreement that uh, works, as I said earlier, for farmers, consumers, and businesses. So it's a little bit of a watch this space. I think this will come together relatively quickly because there's obviously in 2020 other things happening in the United States. But we are being ambitious to do this at an accelerated pace. We've been working on this for the last two years in working groups. So we have a good understanding of each other's size. But I would, I would say that we're trying to, with the European Union, lead that scope so that our independent trade policy and our free trade agreements with others can benefit both parties at that time. And what are your thoughts on Scotland and the Irish border as we move towards, say, the end of this transition period? Uh, what are my thoughts on Scotland? Apart from that, uh, uh, this moment's time. <laughs> apart from this moment's time, I feel very distant, and you know, my thoughts are really with my elderly parents. Like, uh, I'm sure all of those who are separated from our loved ones are. But uh, I mean, it's clear to anybody that, that, that's followed uh, UK politics that uh, after the referendum, there were very different views across the United Kingdom about what that approach uh, should be. If you're talking about uh, Scotland uh, and border issues, there are less of those. The question in Scotland usually centers around independence. Uh, from my perspective as uh, a Scots and also a British person, uh, I think that Scotland is stronger within the United Kingdom. I've thought that all through my life. Uh, the government in Scotland, however, under the Scottish National Party, takes a different view. Uh, there was a referendum in 2014, which we were told would solve the issue for a generation. But uh, obviously the SNP want to come back and are, are very keen to uh, very keen to have another referendum. Uh, I don't rule that out. I think in politics or in diplomacy, it's impossible to rule that out. But I don't really see that that's at the forefront of everybody's mind in Scotland at this moment in time. People are trying to deal with COVID. People want to understand what our future trading relationship will be with the European Union. They want to understand what our future trading relationship will be with the United States. They want the United Kingdom government to deliver on the promises that were made to the electorate, that these were both in their political, economic uh, benefits to all, all people in Scotland. So at this moment in time, you're hearing less about Scottish independence, but that, I don't rule out it coming back. There are big challenges around that. And in terms of Northern Ireland, uh, we reached a deal with the European Union around the protocol and how uh, aspects were dealt with around the flow of goods between Great Britain into Northern Ireland and then on to uh, the Republic of Ireland, uh, which avoided infrastructure and borders, but which did mean that there would be checks done between goods flowing from the island of Ireland to the United Kingdom. And obviously, we're now having until the 31st of December this year to actually understand how that after the transition period, how that will work in practice. There is still a lot of uh, uncertainty, not so much in government, but uh, there was a lot of political debate, rather, within both Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. But uh, I think I would just like to say that the UK remains... Uh, very committed to the Good Friday Agreement. We remain very committed to the prosperity of Ireland and uh, the Republic of Ireland and all parts of the United Kingdom. And we will take our approach based on uh, 
ensuring that we are promoting and defending the interests of the people of Northern Ireland and the rest of the United Kingdom. Uh, has, um, so we have a question about, uh, I guess, some of the Brexit uh, interests that were somewhat anti-immigration and border control uh, vote. And has the public sentiment changed regarding migrant workers in light of COVID-19, whether it's agricultural workers or care workers? Yes, it's, it's obviously a big debate. Uh, I wouldn't say that the United Kingdom, the debate was around anti-migration. I think that there were aspects of the debate that were around the uh, capacity of public services, schools, hospitals, etc., to cope. But even before the, the COVID-19 pandemic, the United Kingdom uh, government brought, uh, announced it would shortly bring in an immigration policy, which was... Uh, directed towards ensuring that people from all across the world with the right skills would be able to come to the United Kingdom, settle and work. You know, so there were certain categories of where we saw skills gaps that uh, uh, that would be promoted and meant potentially more people would be able to get permission to come and work in the United Kingdom. There were allowances made for students because, you know, the UK education system has been... Uh, very strong and will continue to remain strong. The UK requires migration, it requires immigration in order to ensure that we have uh, the right number of people with the right skills uh, at this moment in time and moving forward. But I think you will always find that the United Kingdom, in comparison with other countries, has a very positive immigration policy. What we will not have after the 31st of December this year will be what we call freedom of movement, so that citizens from across the European Union uh, can just come to the United Kingdom and on day one be able to avail themselves uh, free of charge for all public services. Much more will be around visas, uh, and it will be around uh, access to public services. Uh, yes, uh, free of charge at the point of delivery, but it will not be an everyone can come policy. Okay, we have a question from uh, Adam Breen, who is our representative in the state of Tennessee's representative in the UK. Uh, and Adam, has, Adam says, as a state of Tennessee representative in the UK, I'd like to thank Andrew and echo his positive thoughts on future trade investment. I agree with 99% of his comments. The missing 1% is football soccer related as a Rangers fan. <laughs> I remember we talked about this <laughs> when he visited. Does Andrew see the potential for closer working uh, with some of the UK cities uh, with synergies, for example, Manchester, Birmingham, Leeds, and uh, Glasgow? Uh, Adam, it's lovely to meet you virtually. It might be an idea if we have a, a, a telephone conversation at some point just to, to catch up and uh, discuss that. I think it's great that the state of Tennessee has uh, appointed you, Adam. Uh, I think that shows that the state of Tennessee understands that now is the time to be developing those relationships with the UK. Uh, before coming to Atlanta and covering the Southeast, I had a wonderful opportunity to accompany representatives from the National Tech Council, uh, from uh, the National Healthcare Council, from the Chamber, uh, to Manchester and London. I think uh, my message has been very much around, and my experience has been in the southeast. You're beginning to see 
those second-tier cities really become the economic drivers of the economies in the U.S., but also in the United Kingdom. So if you look at cities like Manchester, Birmingham, Glasgow, and Edinburgh, they've adopted very similar models to Nashville and Memphis, whether they want to attract talent, they want to attract innovators, they want to attract uh, financial services, they're all looking to go up the, the, the value chain in terms of jobs. So U.S. investors have always had a very positive experience across the region of the United Kingdom. I would say that nothing can be the city of London in terms of its uh, ecosystem, but there are many, many more cities competing. And for places such as Tennessee, and I think John and Ralph will confirm this and Laurie Odom, you get more face time, you get more engagement, because these smaller cities, and these smaller cities are big cities, see the opportunities. They're all looking, because British government's encouraging them to be more global, to move away from a focus just on the European Union and to look for those opportunities. So that's why I mentioned at the beginning the vibrancy point and how I was delighted that Brian Moyer and the National Tech Council were going to the London Tech Week. But while at the London Tech Week, they were looking to arrange meetings with people from Cardiff, Manchester, Liverpool, because that's the way you get into the United Kingdom at this moment in time, and that's the way that UK cities are far better in terms of moving over uh, to here, because you get that, that take-up, and you also get that opportunity. And Tennessee, Nashville, Memphis, Knoxville, uh, we already have many investors there. Look at people active in the financial services and healthcare and professional services. Uh, and you've had so many big announcements about jobs from, you know, the Amazons, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the time is now, and you just have to look at National City Centre, see how it's being transformed into a place where people will want to come live to work and watch National Soccer Club. So Winston Churchill said Let's not a uh, good crisis go to waste. So what has been the biggest lessons for Great Britain during COVID-19 crisis? Uh, that's a very good question. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll go with the small answer, and then I, 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 I think, uh, and I have this impression uh, around the lines as well, there's more a sense of community. There's more a sense of thinking about others. There's more understanding that people in the so-called low-skilled and lower-paid jobs are making a critical contribution to how we live our lives. I think people are taking more time for each other. So you pass someone in the street in Atlanta and they wave at you, they say good morning, increasingly now. I think that's represented in the United Kingdom where people are more thoughtful uh, about those who are delivering public services. I think business has understood that we've all been talking about technology and flexible working as if it's something that we have to offer. Uh, we've written teeth because we far prefer everybody to be in the office. Uh, and I think that will change. I think that Zoom and WebEx are, are here to stay and how we, and how we do business. I think for the United Kingdom, the one thing, I mean, we, we usually try and look across the horizon. And obviously we've been buffeted for a number of years by Brexit and we've been buffeted around independence. But I think the thing for us is that uh, we have to be global beyond free trade. 
I think that quite it's quite hard to risk um, all who saw a global public health emergency. So we have to be better science diplomats. We have to be better research and development diplomats. And we have to actually think about where can we develop those partnerships. And far be it for me to say the UK wants us to have a coordinated international public health response diplomacy. But that's not just for 2020 or 2021. That's to be sustained because I don't think anybody will ever take our eye off of that ball. And we're better to have that diplomacy in the southeast of the United States where you have, I think, uh, the healthcare sector delivers something like $38 billion to the Tennessee economy every year. So there must be great minds working there on healthcare issues. So how do we get that minds getting the institutions, the private sector companies to work with the public policy experts to really sort of drill down on how can we ensure that healthcare is, and I don't mean this politically, is targeted and available for all in the right places? Because we all have a contribution to that. So how do we get those people speaking? So for uh, the public sector, it's not just delivering services. And for the private sector, it's not just about the bottom line. But we all have that perspective that uh, healthcare and how we ensure that we all have quality of life uh, is that the center of what we do? That's from the answer of policy. No, that was good. That was good. So we, you've spent some time, you know, here in Tennessee uh, over the last uh, few years, and we've spent time with you also in the UK. What uh, industry sectors do you think, uh, and in light now of, of, of the crisis and hopefully a free trade agreement with the U.S. soon, as in later? What do you see maybe as some of the industry sectors that may have the most promise in terms of creating these kind of cross-border uh, collaborations or opportunities? Yeah, I, I mean, I've mentioned some of them. I might turn that around a little bit and say, what are the challenges facing society at this moment in time? And where is the UK trying to, uh, trying to add value? And where can Tennessee add value? So, so the UK government looks across the... Uh, uh, our new economy in four years, future of mobility, how do we move uh, people, goods, and services? Second, how do we deal with an aging society to give them more quality of life for a longer period? Thirdly, how do we harness AI and data? And fourthly, how do we ensure clean growth? So if you look at the, the state of Tennessee, you know, you've got a very active automotive sector. Electrification of vehicles is going to be one of the areas where the United Kingdom, based on our climate change policy, I know that can occasionally be a misrepresented word uh, or title, uh, so that we're, we're looking for electrification of vehicles. So I would see some of the automotive companies in Tennessee and the Southeast very much at the forefront of that. What, what I do say, and you've heard me say this before, John, uh, is the United Kingdom acts despite the fact that we're four individual nations, it acts more collectively, more easily than perhaps the southeast of the United States does. I see less regional cooperation around public policy development, around looking at what the shared tra- uh, challenges in the future. So, so that touches on infrastructure. So I would say at this moment in time, if you're looking for a sector-based approach, I mean, artificial intelligence is obviously uh, a bit, no, not horizontal, but it touches on, on it, all the different verticals. 
I would say at this moment in time that you have Tennessee, which uh, you know far better than me, is globally active in China. It's globally active all across different markets. And what I would say to you is we have strengths in the United Kingdom that match very well in terms of automotive, in terms of life sciences, in terms of medical devices, in terms of professional services, in terms of digital. And I might also talk about creative uh, entertainment how we share information, you know, what will happen after COVID-19 in terms of uh, how we, will we continue going to cinemas? Will there be much more streaming? How do you get creative energy from Nashville, Tennessee, Memphis to make partners in the United Kingdom? How do people access that? I think we have a, that's the opportunity. I see, I see that we need to have of the technology to understand how we'll live our life in the future. And I think, uh, going back to what I said earlier, many companies and businesses have talked about technology. It's improved how they do business. They've managed to sell their apps, etc. But now I think the demand will be how do we take that technology and really apply it to our everyday lives in ways to protect and promote our interests. I agree. I agree. Um, with the global lockdown imposed by the COVID-19 pandemic, the effects on uh, carbon emissions have been more than noticeable. The pictures of cleaner cities and monuments have not gone unnoticed. Are there any discussions or renewed impetus to maintain this trend, which is currently 17% reductions of more remote working, less travel, or any other measures in the UK? Yeah, no, thank you very much for that, John. Uh, I think just one comment, uh, there was there was a period where London lifted its congestion charge, you know, because it was trying to get key workers into the city centre and avoid people using public transport. Uh, but London has just put that back on because I think it understands that the environmental challenges you you need to have those mainstreamed all the time. The United Kingdom was due to uh, host the International Climate Change Summit in Glasgow in early November, but because of COVID-19, we decided to postpone that. We're working very hard that that takes place in 2021 and speaking to the United Nations and others. And that will, I think, and I really do think that COVID-19 will have an impact on how people view our planet, will have an impact on that people will view our planet in terms of stewardship, in terms of... Uh, leaving it in a better position than it currently has been. But at that conference, that international summit next year, where the world leaders will gather, I think there will be a COVID-19 impact on, okay, we've talked about this for such a long period. Uh, we do need to build back in a way that's better. And I think you're hearing much more in the United Kingdom about building back better. And one of the areas will be really looking at how quickly we can move away from an over-reliance on uh, fossil fuels. And that's why when I talk about uh, where is the world's probably most fertile ground for leading the world in terms of electrification of vehicles, with all of those SDI wins in the automotive industries across the Southeast, regional cooperation could really have the Southeast at the pinnacle of everything that we're trying to be achieved. And I think you'll see some of these automotive producers really sort of uh, lending uh, a shoulder to that deal. Uh, and even I'm making my own small contribution. We just had a 
replacement car, which is a hybrid car. And so when I'm driving around Atlanta, it will be a full electric vehicle mode. So every little help at this program. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So recently there have been two notable uh, global meetings to discuss a global response to the pandemic. The first was the Virtual Global Vaccine Summit, uh, I guess earlier in May, and then the recently held uh, World Health Organization meeting. In both cases, the U.S. was conspicuously absent. Um, in my lifetime, the U.S. has always seemed to play a very visible leadership role any time there was a global crisis, whether, whether it directly or indirectly impacted uh, the United States. What impact do you see with the U.S. absence on maybe developing and implementing a real global response to this pandemic in terms of addressing, let's say, the virus itself and then the recovery that, that will have to occur after? Yeah, I mean, I've been a diplomat for 33 years, and uh, the world's always a better place when the U.S. is playing a leading role. Uh, I think Pat, Pat Ryan at the beginning asked the question about uh, WHO and all that. Uh, what I would say, however, is that uh, we fully, the U.K. will host uh, virtually the vaccine summit on the 4th of June, and the U.S. will be represented as that. And the U.S. is doing a lot internationally, perhaps outside uh, decisions around funding the WHO. It is doing a lot internationally to support that uh, vaccine summit to be a success. And I think that uh, the U.S. Uh, international development money or overseas development money is being targeted to, to help those causes that I mentioned earlier. Ensure that we do develop vaccines be that the U.S. or the U.K. or in Italy or in China, that those are distributed to the world's poorest countries as well. So I think uh, the headlines might capture the political development, but the, the institutional architecture of the U.S. continues to play a very, very positive and strong role internationally in terms of ensuring we have the right therapeutics and vaccines. Governments can do it on its own, though. We need universities, we need companies, you know, so that U.S. contribution, that U.K. contribution goes far beyond what governments will do. Now, you, we, you and I have previously talked about the Global Vaccine Summit. Do you want to share more about it, or do you think you've covered that? Because I think that's an important opportunity maybe for folks who are listening just to understand that and maybe uh, see if it is an opportunity for their company or for them personally to participate. Yes, thank you very much, John. So, there are a number of international pledging campaigns underway at the moment uh, about trying to encourage not just governments but uh, private sector companies or philanthropists uh, to uh, make donations or funding pledges that will help that international response. Uh, the one that you refer to, John, is around the Global Vaccine Summit, where a number of governments and foundations and private sector companies, some of the large corporate, are coming together and pledging money. You know, I think uh, the Gates Foundation has said that this year, or over the next 12 months, sorry, that the, 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 the funding required could be as much as $30 billion. Governments will play a big part of that. But you can, you can also be supportive in kind, but you can also pledge financially. And I think that, you know, the Gates Foundation is a good example of a, that they have, uh, they have directed a lot of their money towards, uh, helping health for all, all around the world. So the summit on the 
Opportune has really focused on raising the money to ensure that not just vaccines for COVID, but that all vaccines for polio, for all of those diseases uh, that uh, we, we struggle to eradicate are available to the world's poorest countries. So, so it's, it's one of those areas where the UK was due to host the summit well before COVID-19. So what we're trying to do is direct it towards ensuring that these opportunities are understood. And they're understood that governments, uh, while they have sizable pockets, want to work with others who have the capacity and capability to, to perhaps pledge some funds or to get involved in other ways. Either financial pledges or in kind pledges to ensure that, uh, as I said throughout, that the global public health is addressed. So that's not global public health in G20 countries only, but it's available to everybody around the world. I think it's a, it's a great opportunity, and I wish you the best of luck with that uh, next, I guess, just a few weeks. Well, everyone, uh, thank you so much. We are out of time, and we want to be mindful of your time. So, Council General, thanks for taking the time to be with us this morning uh, and reminding uh, us that while our world may feel really small right now or the size of whatever room you've been working in for the last two months, there are still great opportunities that are out there regarding international business uh, and collaboration between the U.K. and the U.S., and I think that will only – uh, increase over time, especially as we move towards the free trade agreement. So thank you, every, thank you very much, everybody, for listening. And with that, we are adjourned. So thank you very much. Have a nice day. Bye-bye. Thank you.